Welcome to B2B Needs Don Draper, brought to you by True. For too long, B2B has lacked creativity and inspiration, leading to alarming declines in effectiveness and marketing departments being slowly devalued more and more within their organizations. We're here to change that by getting under the skin of what it really means to be a highly effective B2B marketer. We'll be speaking to some of the brightest minds in the industry to discuss what they're doing to be a bit more, well, Don Traper. Now to our host, Nathan Anibaba. Welcome back to B2B Needs Don Draper, the show that puts the martini back in the marketing. I'm your host, Nathan Anibaba, and today is a special double feature episode. First up, we're thrilled to have David Turner, a man who knows how to solve problems, build teams and create brands in the B2B tech sector, former CMO of Iris Group. He's held senior positions at NetSuite, Oracle and Unit4. So whether you're a SaaS startup or a private equity giant, David has the wealth of experience and foundational skills to help you achieve your growth goals. Joining David is Richard Parsons, our very own co-founder of True, leading creative B2B media agency with clients from startups to blue chip giants like Adobe, Cisco, Oracle, etc. Richard's experience spans over 30 years in B2B marketing, which is a nice way of saying that he's really old. So David and Richard, welcome to the show. Hi, Nathan. Thanks, Nathan. First question to you, David. What does being a bit more Don Draper mean to you? Well, apart from, you know, I would love to have been sitting here in a kind of a trilby and smoking a cigarette and looking incredibly cool. Um, I, I think what, what we're talking about is a bit more focus on brand building and, and creative brand building in the B2B market, which I think uh, is is increasingly missing actually i think you know the focus we see in a lot of b2b today particularly driven by private equity and and um the sort of real uh emphasis on demand gen or growth marketing uh you know it's all on the sharp end of lead generation and, and there's there's nowhere near as much thought about the um, you know, the, the foundational kind of activities of brand building and, and particularly using creativity, which I know Richard is passionate about. We're going to come to the conversation about the influence of private equity in B2B, because I think they have had a hand in changing the direction of a lot of B2B marketers and just B2B marketing strategy in, in general because of, of their goals and, and ambitions. But before we do, it feels as though there's been a generational shift in B2B marketing. It feels as though um, 30 years ago, when when Richard was younger and had a, bit, a little bit more hair, we had a broader canvas with which to play. We were more creative. We focused on brand building activity significantly more. And I think our companies benefited as a result of that. You know, the, there are great examples that I'm sure you can share as well, David, about sort of how those brand campaigns have delivered tremendous impact. Talk about the generational shift in B2B marketing. It feels as though we've shifted in the other direction due to marketing automation, the importance of data coming into, into marketing and our ability to sort of measure everything to the nth, nth degree. Talk about the generational shift that has happened in B2B marketing to make Richard feel a little bit more comfortable with, with his age. Yeah, look, I, I, you know, I also started out um, a little bit over, over 30 years ago and um I, I, I think, um, you know, even then, proper brand 
building, creative brand building, big campaigns, big creative ideas in B2B, certainly in the sort of SMB area of B2B, um, was not that common either. Um, but, um, you know, you saw it in the very big brands, um, but but not in the sort of mid-market SMB space. But uh, but I do think people were open to it. And, and certainly, you know, when, when in my first company, uh, when I was at Coda, we um, we persuaded the board to to back exactly that a big creative you know um sort of mold breaking campaign that was much more b2c in style than than b2b um and you know we ran i might talk about that later but yeah we ran it and then we measured it in a, in a very traditional style which was you know we measured the impact on brand recall amongst our target audience using you know doing market research i think part of the generational shift has been uh, it has been the introduction of you know technology and digital marketing, and this belief that everything can now be measured and, and almost instantly measured. You know, there was the old adage, wasn't there? That, yeah, which you, you still hear, and I forget it was. Uh, I think it was a famous um, publisher or businessman who, who said, you know, fifty. I know that fifty percent of my marketing spend is wasted. I just don't know which half. And then, you know, when we got to this point where suddenly we could measure every every kind of uh, web click and every lead and every activity um, in using digital marketing, people thought, this is fantastic. I can now, you know, I know exactly when I spend a pound, I know exactly where that pound's going to go and what it's going to give me. Uh, and, and I don't have to waste that 50% that notionally people believe they were wasting. Um, and I think there's some, there's some truth in that. Absolutely, you can measure that. but But it tends to push you towards the, the sort of focus on the bottom end of the market uh, of, the, of the funnel um, because that's where you really can measure impact and results um, and less thinking about the, the you know the top of the funnel or even sort of you know before the top of the funnel where you're, you're trying to just educate the market on your and, and build your brand way before people are anywhere near you know being in market for your product um, and I think uh, I think that's People now, when, when you propose doing creative brand building type campaigns, um, they, um, they, they're, kind of, they're kind of a bit thrown by it, a bit, um, bit, you know, they don't, because they don't understand really how you're going to measure that in that same way and, and how are you going to guarantee success. I, mean, I literally got asked that, you know, not that long ago when I did this just a, a year or two ago. Um, exactly that and it was kind of well how can you guarantee that it's going to work and have what are the measures and now there are there are measures you can use using some of those digital techniques but it's different to you know i put 10 pounds into my ppc account and i can see exactly what that gives me richard have b2b marketers just forgotten how to do b2b marketing properly I think it's. Um, I think that's probably unkind. I don't know that it's, it's about forgetting, but I think that there is a generation of B two B marketer that has never been involved in brand building. You know, they will in large organisations. You you often get siloed. So, uh, but the, and there is an emphasis on performance marketing. So there are more people in digital or performance marketing who are working in SEO or working on those um, kind of last click campaigns. Uh, there's that private equity influence. The or the street that's, that's you know driving that 
quarterly reporting. It means that there's a lot of short-termism, I think, you know, to David's point, there's that short-termism that, that's occurring in the market. And that means that there's been loads and loads of pressure um, on short-term and performance marketing. That does mean that, if, you know, in the last 20 years, when we lost, I've said this before on this podcast, but, you know, we lost our, our big canvas in B2B, which was the double-page spread in in, uh, in trade magazines. And as that all shifted to the to the internet, you know, in the in the early days of the internet, we had these little static ads, ad units that were as big as a stamp. And, you know, no way of kind of creating a brand story w- within that. Um, and therefore, it became a volume. A volume play rather than a quality play, uh, because you couldn't really do much much creatively within that space. Now it's a completely different world. I think that the internet, we actually are more likely to be in a golden age now. The internet has completely opened up. There's a plethora of, of choices, but I do think that there is a generational issue in that we, in the last 20 years, we've had a whole bunch of marketers. If you think about it, people who started 20 years ago are now in CMO roles, um, even in that senior role, may never have uh, built um, a brand. Uh, really only been responsible for lead generation and trawling the market for people with an immediate need. Um, yeah, so I think that there is um, uh, a educational requirement for people to kind of get up to speed with what good looks like. But I don't blame them. I think it, it is, there's a lot of uh, a lot of pressure. One of the big pressures came from the tech companies themselves, the marketing automation platforms with their deep pockets. They all said, let's all emphasize inbound marketing, advertising is dead. You know, things like that were said. In the, it's HubSpot's fault. Uh, well, it's HubSpot, it's Marketo, it's Eloqua. Um, it's all of it's all of those those um, actual. Um, I think uh, David, in our pre-interview, you mentioned you're a physicist. I'm I'm an electronics engineer by background, and I and, and I specialise in systems engineering. I can see systems engineering thinking throughout marketing. Um, but the one thing that system engineers are terrible at is understanding human beings. That's not that's not their forte, um, and um, and so once you bring the human into these very methodical uh, systems of you know n- nurturing someone of an inch of their life, it sort of assumes that the funnel, the linear funnel, is a perfect model, and it actually is is um, is not true at all. A human being can be in two places on that funnel at the same time, which is crazy. You know, uh, it, it blows uh, the uh, blows the whole thing out of the water because, and, or you might be at the top of the funnel at nine o'clock in the morning and you might be at the bottom of the funnel by 11 o'clock. <laughs> you know, no, no, nobody's marketing automation platforms are working uh, to such a, to, to, to such stupid speed. So, so it's, it's, it's crazy. And by the way, by 12 o'clock, you'll be back at the beginning again. Coming to you, David, because you spend a lot of time working in PE-backed companies. Brand isn't something that PE-backed companies typically talk about. They typically talk about demand, performance, bottom of the funnel, results, why don't we talk about brand as much with PE-backed companies if they understood the power of brand to be able to drive results for their for their organizations they probably would is does it take a, a strong CMO or senior leader to educate them about about the power of this stuff why aren't PE-backed companies which it almost feels as though they're partly responsible for this shift that we've seen in B2B marketing recently why aren't they more bullish about brand I think um the, the the key there's a couple of things here and and look I don't think PE companies are entirely responsible I think yeah we've already talked about the technology aspect to it I think PE companies PE companies operate on this um, and this cycle that, that you know you know they invest and they're looking for four to five years 
um, until the next turn when they they're going to either invest again or they're or, or they're going to you know going to sell it on. And that's not to say they're entirely short term because they're not. I've worked with PE companies who absolutely understand that they need to invest. Uh, you know, they need to invest in in technology or in product or in service or sometimes in brand as well um, in order to to get the uplift they need. But that that's relative short termism does lead them towards you know thinking more about performance marketing that focus on you know if we invest in demand gen if we invest in sales and we can just we can we can build sales and build um EBITDA, uh you know over the next few years then then uh, you know we'll achieve the the targets they want and they always have very aggressive targets i think that you know there is a point about understanding the cycle of a of a, of, of a PE company's investment. So in the early in the early years, in the first couple of years of a cycle, i.e., when the, the the PE company has just invested, that is the time when a CMO needs to be talking to the to the PE to the investors about uh, investing in brand because they are absolutely open to to investment in all aspects. As I say, not not just. Not not just marketing, but in in uh, in product and, and everything, and you know they will make longer term plays. But the reality is, if you're at three at year three or year four, they are not going to start investing, you know, hundreds of thousands in brand building because then that's not going to, or it's unlikely to impact the the, the sales results by you know by the end of the the fifth year. Or so, so I think um, yeah, it's not it's not impossible, but those those cycles do drive increasingly as you go through the cycle a sort of more short-term focus uh, and therefore yeah you don't see it and then and then the other thing that uh, I don't see as much in b2b companies is a focus on the value of brand li- literally valuing it as an asset on the balance sheet and I know that's not a it's not a it's not something you see a lot in in Again, mid-market B2B, yes, you said the very big companies, of course, you know, Facebook and Google, I'm sure, will value their brand absolutely uh, as a matter of course, but you don't tend to see that further down the market. And and I think that's a conversation to be had between marketing and finance, actually. I did, I did, <laughs> I did open that conversation with my CFO at a firm uh, recently, and, and um, it didn't get very far, to be honest. And possibly that was because where we were in the cycle again, so it wasn't really. It would have been a big, big exercise to do that valuation project, and then we weren't at a point where we would be able to impact the valuation of the brand, you know, within the, that cycle. But I, I do, I do, I don't see PE companies focusing on that so much. When you talk about valuing branded, it it, it feels as though, and and Richard, you could you could talk. You can talk to this point. It, it feels as though quite early on in the valuation of, of a company, everything else is measured and uh, uh, and appropriated, and the the last thing to be uh, valued seems to be brand. R- Richard, just just talk about kind of how accountants take brand into account when they are looking to drive a valuation for a company, and 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 how much more should we be focusing on that? In general, when when it comes to valuing our, our, our businesses, 
I think to a certain extent, it comes down to accounting rules. So in the when you look at the balance sheet, uh, no one puts their brand value. No one, even Coca-Cola, are very unlikely to put a... Uh, I may be wrong with Coca-Cola, but it's, it's, it's for most brands, they don't really put a value on the brand. It's not on the balance sheet. It's not seen as an asset. The only time that it becomes uh, an asset is during the exit. So that's when you end up with these intangible assets. And a significant part of intangible assets is brand value or goodwill, it sometimes is called. So... Um, it's in that moment of the exit. That's when uh, that there is a communication to these private equity firms to understand that at that exit point they will be negotiating. Uh, they know this very well. I mean, they're experts in what in in, in exits and, and selling their the businesses that they they've invested in. Um, but but the, but to be fair to the private equity firms, the lion's share of what they're doing is looking at that EBITDA and a multiple. And there's two things you can do. You can get volume by bringing uh, business A and business B and merging the two together. Uh, so this merger and acquisition piece, uh, just one plus one equals three. Uh, the bigger you are, the you know, add another 10 million to, to the revenue, more likely to increase the multiple. So just by being bigger and just by adding two businesses that you've acquired and bring them together means that you can create um, you can create uh, increases in the multiple. But um, but also the uh, you, you then obviously can end up with these massive consolidation benefits, and that means that you can increase your EBITDA. So just your 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 EBITDA can go up. That's what they're focused on because that's how that is the easiest way for them to make to make money. But if they are in the market for this kind of three, four, maybe five-year cycle, the thing I would agree with David, they should be heavily in that cycle. It doesn't mean that the business needs to be a startup, but in that investment cycle, they should be investing in that three, four, five-year growth. Um, and that means they should be putting an emphasis on brand in the first instance. As they get closer to their exit, they probably, I would agree, they probably should be divesting in the amount that they spend on brand. But any new acquirer will look in a very shallow way, actually. Due diligence very rarely looks at the difference between brand advertising and performance advertising. It's just seen as advertising. What I would say is if I was a private equity firm and involved in the operations of the businesses that I invest in, I would say, let's put more emphasis on brand and a higher percentage, let's say 70, 75% of the budget towards brand in year one. But when I'm near my exit, year four, let's say, maybe I'll only spend 10%. But overall, my performance marketing will shoot up as I go throughout that cycle. So overall, my investment looks flat. So anybody buying into this organization will say, this actually is a stable business. They're investing the same amount in marketing over the long term. But actually, behind the scenes, you've been a bit tricky. You've short, you have actually uh, invested for the short term. Not good for employees, not good for customers, not good for the, for, the, for the brand and the health of the business. So I'm not doing it from that point of view, purely from the point of view of the private equity firm and the investor and maximizing their, their return. That would be if I was an investor in private equity, that's what I would be doing. David, it, it almost feels as though your career has mirrored the changes in B2B marketing over the last 20, 25 years or so, because it feels as though you, you started off and it feels as though you started off very much as a, as a, as a brand marketer. Um, you, you talked at the top of the show about the Coda campaign and, 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 and the, you know, the tremendous effects that it had on, on, on the business. Maybe you can talk a little bit about sort of what that campaign was and sort of what the results were, but it feels as though since that point, you've then gone on to Unit 4, NetSuite and Oracle, uh, Iris, who have been sort of in, in many ways, very uh, sort of um, bottom of the funnel performance focused. I may be wrong in that 
characterization, but can you see how you, your own career has sort of mirrored the changes in, in, in B2B marketing over the last handful of years? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, I think when when I, like I said, my first job was a company called Coda, which was a mid-market um, accounting software player based in the UK. Um, very successful. Um, probably had the best accounting system in the world. Um, as a, uh, you know, in the early early mid nineties, um, and it knocked the knocked the knocked the spots off Oracle Financials or any of those at the time. Um, uh, but was not particularly well known. Um, other than in its very kind of niche customer base, really. And we um, decided, we, you know, we decided that we really needed to, to build the brand. And at the time, uh, you know, advertising accounting software, uh, accounting software systems, you would, um, you would take out a page or a half page in accountancy age. There would be lots of text that explained all the functionality that your product had. There would be a picture of um, lots of international coins and notes because you wanted to say it was multi-currency because that was a big thing. Um, there'd be a picture of a computer because obviously it was software and you wanted people to understand it was a, it was software. <laughs> and there was this kind of formula. Literally, we looked at all the competitor ads and the ads that Coda had been running, um, and they were very just trade, uh, just just uninspiring. And uh, what what I then I, I showed we showed to the board was look. The people that you're, it goes to Richard's point about where people being in different parts of the funnel and that people are also in, have different roles. And you know, in 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 their in their personal life, the CFOs, the finance directors that we were trying to sell to, are reading the Sunday Times and seeing these beautiful double page spreads from, from British Airways and BMW, and you know, they're exposed to all this amazing advertising. And and suddenly you expect them when they they become in their day job, a, a finance director, to suddenly respond to these dreadful ads with, you know, 500 words of, of copy and and, um, and and these dull pictures. So <clears throat> we, we took a very consumer approach. We um, used a famous fashion photographer uh, who was doing the BA ads at the time. And, um, and uh, yeah, long story short, we, we did five ads and they were five full-page pictures of Indigenous people from around the world, uh, uh, Papua New Guinea, mud man, an Aborigine, um, a, a Mohican Indian, uh, um, a Tuareg, um, and a uh, uh, there was there was there was another one which I forget. But anyway, the beautiful, beautiful, absolutely stunning images that you would could frame and put on your wall, and then it just had I think seven words. It just said an accounting system for the world. And then had a, a phone number. It didn't didn't have a web address at the time because we didn't have. <laughs> it was before the we had websites, and um, and you know we showed that to the board, and and they they were kind of apoplectic because it didn't say what the it didn't say what your software did. Oh, sorry, each of these people, I should say, each of them was holding a, a disc, a floppy disc, which tells you when it was, which just had <laughs> which just had the Coda logo on, and that was the only thing. It was very out of place, of course, because they were. You know, in, the, in their sort of indigenous, in their kind of natural um, environment and costumes and whatever, and uh, and with this computer disc, um, so it was a striking image, um, but it but it didn't say anything. Else. It didn't tell you that it was multi-currency. It didn't tell you all the functionality it did or how many ledgers it had or the fact that it was you know better than the competition. It just, but it was yeah, obviously it was very bold. It was a real statement, and um, 
we persuaded persuaded the board to go for it, and then we persuaded them to also to to, to cough up the money to run full page ads in not just things like Accountancy Age and uh, um, Finance Director Magazine, but actually in in the the, uh, the FT and uh, some other publications, and um, it had a, it had a massive impact. Um, it had a yeah, we measured the impact so. Over a period of eighteen months, we we grew brand awareness amongst finance directors of fifty million turnover companies and above, from somewhere around twenty three percent to about seventy seven percent, which is pretty stunning. <laughs> and uh, uh, but also, you know, they had unintended consequences. Like the FT would ring us up fairly regularly and say, "Look, we've got we've got an empty page. We've got nothing to run. Can we run your ad for free?" And that was like £45,000 worth of advertising for free just because these ads were so stunning and they just unlike anything that was was being run in the FT or, or anywhere. Um, so, yeah, you know, it was it, it, that period, there was the opportunity to do that. It's not that everyone was doing it, clearly, because we had to, we, we did kind of break the mould um, doing that, and I have to, I, you know, I, it was the team effort. We, I, I had a I had a CMO at the time who'd come from uh, come from consumer marketing, who was very much driving that, and a, and a fantastic advertising agency as well, by the way, uh, who, who really kind of grasped the the, the challenge there. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I think that was a great example, and we did see, you know, we saw obviously that awareness did translate into more activity and more invitations to tender being sent in and more leads and more more sales over the over the years you know we didn't necessarily have the tools in place to measure it in the, in the way we can today i think yeah whereas if i if i go forward uh you know actually in the sort of mid mid 2000s was when i saw i, I was starting to work with SaaS companies i started a uh, a SaaS accounting software company, actually still within the Coda organization. Uh, and we worked with Salesforce. And working with Salesforce was when I first saw that high volume inbound demand generation model. You know, you go to went to Dublin and they had these roomfuls of kids on phones, uh, you know, just um, phoning out. And then, and then these, this, um, um, but you know, sort of very traditional, very consumer-style kind of outbound marketing. But then also this uh, approach to, to digital marketing, which was you know about about generating high volume inbound. Uh, and then later at Netsuite, we built that we built that sort of machine right as we expanded the organisation right across EMEA. So the focus was much more on that uh, on the sharp end, if you like, than it was on the on the on the brand end. And, and I think. Yeah, there's still room to do it. And, and, and next week we did. Sorry, at, uh, at Iris, just about the last few years, we did a you know a big out a big out of home campaign, which was something they'd never done before. Uh, you know, we included radio, um, sports advertising, round matches that were on Sky TV. Uh, you know, uh, bus tube advertising, all of that. So you know, the, the, if you've got the right, if you've got the right opportunity and the right uh, product I, th I think is absolutely still the chance to do it and you can then you can now measure certainly short term the impact that has on web visits for example which you could see spike literally if there was a sports match you know you could actually see the the, the visits to the website go up during that match 
um, or you know during that radio when the radio campaign was run during the day. So you can absolutely measure today impact that it has, or leading indicators at least that it's that it's having an impact. But it's it's I think it's beholden on you know we've, we've blamed technology and we've blamed private equity. Um, it is beholden on us as, as marketing people to stand up and show the market, uh, show, show our, our, our our investors and our our, our colleagues, um, demonstrate why they should invest in brand and what impact that will have. You know, we can't just say we want to do it because it's great and it makes us feel good and you know we all love doing that creative stuff. We have got to we've got to show, demonstrate, and prove that it will have an impact and it will ultimately drive sales because, you know, let's face it, at the end of the day, we are there as marketing people to, to drive revenue and drive the success of a company. Uh, you know, we can't deny that. Uh, we just have to be able to demonstrate that how investing in creative brand building is going to uh, make that job easier, actually, you know, and, 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 and increase the impact of your digital marketing and your PPC and your your other activities. And there's so much there's so much empirical evidence. I mean, so when you were at Coda and you had to persuade the board or, you know, your senior execs to uh, to invest in in those FT ads, um, it was a bit of a pun. It probably was a bit of like, you know, we've got a good feeling about this. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but now there's so much empirical evidence. And I mean, what's interesting is, you know, back in the day, uh, the FT gave you some free space because they liked the ads and the ads probably stood out in, in, in the FT. Um, you know, if you run something on YouTube today and it has high uh, viewability, so people, you know, to completion, people are watching your ads on YouTube, then actually YouTube give you a discount. So, your, you, so the amount that you pay, your CPM will drop dramatically because your ads are performing. The, you know, so, so, and that happens over and over again. So you end up with, if your ads are, are good ads and performing and people like them and the relevance is there and their clicks and all those things, then actually the, the, the platforms nearly always reward you by giving you a discount, i.e. free space. Um, so I think that, that, that that's, you know, and, and those things are highly measurable. Um, I think the other thing is that this move from high attention media, which FT would have been, uh, to this kind of short attention media, the, uh, the, the to, 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 like PPC would be the extreme version of, of that. But um, there's loads of empirical evidence that says that high attention media outperforms that short term short term uh, sales activated type type media um, and not just in the in the in the long term but in the short term too so you know there's there's an awful lot of evidence out there and for some reason marketers b2b marketers especially are ignoring a lot of this a lot of this um this evidence so um I mean, just 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 uh, just Google high attention media. There's there's a load of uh, a load of results coming out of uh, of the equivalent of the IPA in Australia. Um, it's kind of the Advertising Association of Agencies down there. Um, you know, go and have a look at some of their their research. Go and have a look at the B2B Institute. Go and have a look at the IPA in the UK. There's an awful lot of of research and and Walk, of course, if you have a, a subscription to Walk. There's an awful lot of, of of research that says what good looks like, and for some reason. B2B marketers are reluctant to kind of grab hold of some of this evidence. What's a good example of high attention media in, in the modern age? 
Are we talking about TV? Um, yes. I think as everything moves to being bought programmatically, the, uh, the, the most um, obvious high attention one is TV. Actually, I always think that just above TV is cinema. At the moment, though, you can't buy cinema, uh, you can't buy cinema advertising programmatically, as far as I know. Um, but you can buy TV uh, programmatically. So you can buy that little 30-second slot that is only going to be sightseen by the audience that you define and not by the general population or by geography as it historically was done. So Sky, Sky AdSmart in the UK is, is, is a great platform for that. Um, so TV is definitely high attention media. But even on the web, you know, video as a format rather than a, um, a channel or a platform, video is, 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 is high attention as well. And these are really, really big campuses much better than the double page spread ever was um, that allows us to tell that story. The other thing is uh, digital out of home. So we used to buy out of home, used to be the big canvas, it's the equivalent of, of, of that space. It used to be the preserve back in the day of code, it would have been the preserve of only those massive brands. Um, and now you can buy digital out of home very, very economically. You know, it's uh, uh, buy those bus shelters, buy those, those uh, uh, train station uh, digital digital billboards you know they're, they're they're not as expensive as you think and you can be incredibly targeted with them as well so we were buying tube station ads and, and positions around london and manchester where we knew they were they were going to hit the the audience we wanted so around you know obviously sort of city of london and key key kind of literally by tube station by tube station you can you can define where you want them to to hit i'm, I'm still trying to work out how you do programmatic cinema advertising that would be um <laughs> that would be interesting it, it would be again yeah it would be based on audiences and it's obviously quite broad it's not going to be uh you know it might be the last bastion or or i think the last bastion of programmatic will be print uh <laughs> that, that's uh but but uh yeah uh you're you're right it's uh, obviously good very general audiences but there's a difference between the oppenheimer movie and barbie and you know the audiences that went to see those and therefore you know that's traditional media media buying but maybe if you add the geography with the location of that screening is you, you can start to add maybe data layers to, to some of that i mean i don't know i'm kind of imagining the future but uh but for example radio uh, ads are, are programmatic podcasts uh, advertising is programmatic these days you know so um an awful lot um an awful lot is programmatic. In terms of the uh, digital out of home, one of our clients uh that, that's involved in quite big uh, uh bidding uh, regarding um, digital out of home, one of our clients actually, because um, you've got that hyper targeting that you talked about, we actually target around the head office, the headquarters of that business to support bids. So when they're so all of those people that are coming from Bank Station to their office in you know uh, I don't know somewhere in the city, um, you know we are following that commute route. Um, and in addition, a lot of these organisations um, carry advertising inside their building. Uh, so we actually buy the digital inside the HQ of the organisation that, that, that our client is targeting. Really clever. Richard and David, final question to both of you. I'm going to ask you to look into, into your crystal ball and ask, do you think that the future of B2B marketing and B2B marketers will change? You know, Are we going to see a shift back to the emphasis on brand or do you see this trend towards increasing performance and digitization and data in performance and marketing continuing. What do you think the future 
looks like for B2B marketers? I think, I don't think it's an either or, but I, I think there will be, I think there kind of is a move towards, back towards the, the, the brand building, that creative brand activity. And I think the reason is that if you go down the, 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 the digital, you know, performance marketing kind of route, kind of to its, to its nth degree, which is you, you focus everything in on, on that uh, very targeted digital advertising. What you will find is, a bit like Richard was mentioning earlier, there becomes a, a sort of law of diminishing returns where you're, you, know, you can't get beyond the numbers you got to and, and you keep increasing budget on your PPC or whatever and it doesn't get generate anymore. And, and the only way you can grow the, the market or, or actually reduce the cost Per, per click or per lead is often is actually by investing in brand because if you're if you're just focusing on that sharp end uh, without any kind of brand awareness and I've literally I, I've, I've proved this um, sort of to my cost really is if you're if you're doing the the, well, the performance marketing bit without any sort of brand building or brand activity you are it, it's very expensive and you end up putting more and more money into it because. Nobody, if nobody actually knows you, they're not searching for you. That you, 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 you've got a, you know, you're trying to kind of raise your flag in a in a sea of other competitors who all look exactly the same. And let's face it, you know, differentiating yourself on in search marketing or, or, or whatever is really difficult um, unless somebody recognises your brand and goes, oh yeah, okay, I know these guys. Uh, so it becomes uh, critical that you invest in brand at the same time as you invest in. Your performance marketing activity. So I think it goes hand in hand, and I think people have started to realise that in order to be more effective at the at the sharp end, you've got to make that investment up front in the in the brand building. What do you think, Richard? Are we going to see a shift back towards brand? Are we already seeing that? We're already seeing it. There's lots of empirical evidence, as I said, but I think it's going to get um, even, the momentum is even going to kind of push even further. Uh, if you take something like, just take a, an activity like PPC, like um, you know Google AdWords, and you're finding those phrases and those words that people are searching on, you hit a plateau very quickly. So you get some, you get that growth, but then you hit a plateau very quickly. It kind of does, does it kind of go, just, just it, you can't get any more growth out of that word. So the way that PPC gets growth is it starts to look for a long tail of search phrases. And sometimes you might be only one click on that search phrase, but you get that click because you've got your very, very long tail. AI is going to be much better at looking at those patterns and creating that automatically. So we will end up hitting those plateaus very, very quickly because AI and everyone will have access to AI. Everyone will have access to the same data. Everyone will ultimately all be following the same, chasing the same audiences and hitting those plateau, plateaus faster. Um, so that means that the only place left is in the ingenuity, the bit that AI is going to struggle, the bit that AI, eventually I'm sure it will catch up and it will get there, you know, but but uh, hopefully not in my lifetime. I think that the the bit that's left is that ingenuity bit, the storytelling bit, the bit that, that the emotive bit that that is all about humanity and not about data. Um, that will be the bit where we end up getting additional growth. Uh, those brands that don't communicate to me and feel like they're stalking me, but those brands that talk to me and make me feel like I'm a human being, uh, entertain me, reward me, make me feel something. 
there that's where we're going to go and that ai thing is coming really really fast so uh so watch your space i suspect you know within a couple of years we'll already be there <laughs> well said uh well it just leads me to say thank you to both david and richard for a fascinating and insightful chat thank you to you both you're welcome thanks i enjoyed it thanks nathan yeah appreciate it as usual all it leads me to say is thank you very much for listening to this episode of B2B Needs Don Draper. I'm Nathan Anibaba. See you next time. Find out more at trueagency.com slash podcast.